Now, the first reading is from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1, and it's found on page 1010 of the Bibles from the foyer. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, the second reading uh, is flip over a few pages to 1027, the Church Bibles, beginning at Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders, wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happy about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Thanks, Rosemary. Uh, well, we... Uh, come tonight in, in, I think this is the second week, isn't it, of your um, Upside Down Kingdom series. Sean started us off uh, last week. Uh, we come to the same question that the disciples have. Who is greatest in Jesus' kingdom? 
uh, who is greatest uh, in Jesus' kingdom. Um, as we're going to kind of find out tonight, maybe you're paying lots of attention in the reading and you already know this, um, Jesus' answer kind of is, is unexpected and is actually pretty confronting. Um, it, it's actually uh, al- almost insulting and, and jarring uh, to the disciples um, in a way that I think means that tonight, if we really hear what Jesus is saying, it should be quite a, a kind of hard pill for us to swallow, right? It, it should be something um, which... We, we naturally don't want to hear, not something which we uh, hear and go, oh, that's really nice, like I'll, I'll put that on an Instagram post or write it in a card or just like it, it's a feel-good. It, it's actually quite confronting. Um, and because of that, I really want to start off tonight just by praying for us. Uh, praying that we might have soft enough hearts that when Jesus gives an answer we don't expect um, and perhaps an answer that we don't really want to hear in some ways, we'll have soft enough hearts uh, to let that affect us, right? Um, I could do a, um, a terrible job up here, and if he wants to do that to our hearts, he will. I could do a wonderful job, and if we don't ask for his help, it means nothing, right? So, uh, how about I start by just asking him to give us hearts that are ready to hear what he has tonight, and then we're just going to work through this story, see what they ask, see what he said, see what it means for us. Um, but let's start by praying. Uh, Jesus, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that uh, through it we can know you, We're not left to just guess for our whole lives uh, whether there's a God and what He's like, but You reveal Yourself to us. And and Jesus, we're not left in the dark about ourselves either, but You give us the Bible as a mirror in which we see ourselves reflected. And, And Lord, I just ask that tonight You will give us hearts that are ready to to see that picture of ourselves, to see it through Your eyes, not our own, and to be transformed to be more like you in response. I just pray that, Jesus, trusting that that will give you glory and that ultimately it will also give us as your people joy. We ask it in your name. Amen. All right, so we come to the same question uh, that the disciples do, who is the greatest in the kingdom? When we think about the disciples, it kind of maybe makes sense if they haven't yet got their heads around uh, what, what you guys are talking about here, that Jesus' kingdom is upside down, that it's not like the kingdoms of the world, right? Um, because if we think about the, the journey so far for these guys, they've been travelling along with someone who they've increasingly begun to realise is the king of the universe, right? Uh, He's been talking a lot about his kingdom along the way and then they've been seeing miracles and hearing his authoritative teaching and all kinds of things making them think, you know what, this guy who's saying he's a king and his kingdom is here seems legit because he's doing crazy stuff. They've been convinced we are walking along with the future king and his kingdom is imminent, right? So it kind of makes sense that since they haven't yet thought through this whole upside-downness of the kingdom, they're thinking Jesus' kingdom is just like any other, and they think, this guy I'm walking with is about to become the king of everything, the, the greatest empire, like Rome has conquered us at the moment and is ruling everything, but we're about to, to kick them out and take over everything, right? All of the nations will come under Jesus' rule, and a kingdom that big is going to need more than just one guy running it, right? It's not going to just need a, a Caesar or a king in charge of it, He's going to need prime ministers, he's going to need advisors, he's going to need chancellors over the whole uh, royal household, he's going to need whatever their equivalent of a minister for defence, right, the commander of the armies, he's going to need all of these glorious positions. And who's going to get the glorious positions? Well, obviously, the guys who've been walking with him, they've been his friends, they've been uh, in this kind of homeless season of his life, they've been sticking with him, Uh, they were the ones who chose to follow him first, so surely they're going to get the glorious positions, 
And so thinking Jesus' kingdom is just like any other kingdom in this world, they, they start to argue over who's the greatest. And based on what we know of the disciples, we can maybe guess some of the arguments, though I'm sure there are a lot there that we're, we're not familiar with and we'll, we'll never know until we chat to them maybe in glory about what exactly they were fighting about. But I can imagine Peter, he's always the one who is really quick to speak, right? Uh, perhaps kind of too quick to speak, but ends up being like a, a spokesperson and probably the most, um, I guess, charismatic member of the disciples, it seems, the one others look to, the one who was brave enough and bold enough to say what everyone was thinking. So perhaps he makes a case as the most outspoken, prominent disciple that he'll be the greatest. And you can imagine him listing off all the things that he's been brave enough to do, courageous enough to do. Did you say, I, I'm the one he called out of the boat, right? How many of you guys have walked on water? Right? He, so he's starting his resume off. Meanwhile, you've got Judas, who's carrying all of the money at the moment, and no one's caught him yet, right? They don't know what's going to happen with Judas. They just know he's the guy with the money, and he's thinking, I've got a little bag of money at the moment from the donations people have given and whatever, but once we're a kingdom that's covering the whole known world, imagine how big the royal treasury will be, and I'll be the treasurer, right? And he's thinking, surely I'm going to be the greatest, right? The purse strings of the entire planet. He didn't know it was a planet, I suppose, but you get the point, right? So, so he's thinking, maybe it's me that's the greatest, You've got John, right? What did John call himself when he wrote down his memoirs of Jesus' life after the other guys weren't there to answer it? What did he call himself? The one that Jesus loved, right? The beloved, Jesus' closest, dearest friend. And so maybe it's John saying, look, you guys might have done some fancy stuff, but Jesus loves me the most. And if I'm the the beloved of the prince, then surely I'm going to be in a position of greatness and privilege and authority. And they keep arguing, and Andrew's saying, well, I'm the one who followed him first. You guys wouldn't even have started following him if I hadn't done it first. I made it cool to follow Jesus. You guys are just following me. I've been following him the longest. I'll be the one who's the greatest. And you imagine them arguing, listing off their, their pedigree, as it were, to figure out which one of them will be most important, will be most honored, will have the most power, authority, and wealth when Jesus takes over the world. And I want us just to think... To start with, as we work through this passage, like God's Word is a mirror that we see ourselves reflected in, where we see that same heart begin to take root in ourselves. Now, now my guess, and I am just kind of guessing, um, no one came up and contradicted me this morning, so I think we might be on to something, that we all do similar things in our hearts, and it's not just me, but the thing is we don't say them out loud, so we don't realize that we're all doing it. But I know in my heart, there's a a common tendency to start thinking of myself and then start thinking of the people around me, start comparing and start thinking my list looks better than theirs in some way. Right? I'm going to tend to prioritise the things that I'm good at so it's almost definitely going to come out with, with me on top and, and me judging them a little bit. And, and that happens even amongst us when it comes to faith and church, doesn't it? There's, there's a bit of the disciples' heart here in each of us and we start thinking about whether it's as uh, simple as our church attendance, whether it's uh, who our parents are and how long our family's been in the church, uh, whether it's the number of working bees that we've come to, is it 8.30 next Saturday? Everyone will be there. Like whatever it is, how many consecutive years have I hosted a Bible study in in my home? Um, How much influence do I have over a social group at church so that whatever my opinion is starts to shape whole group's opinions and so I, I wield quite a bit of power? Here's the ministries that I volunteer for. And we start to think, I'm kind of a big deal around here. We start to think, if there was an honour roll that was going to be put up at Currajong North Richmond Anglican Church, I, almost, I keep almost leaving North away, it's Currajong North Richmond Anglican Church. 
if they were going to put up an honor roll, I'm pretty sure I'd be on it. We start to think like that. Or if I wouldn't be on it, it's only because people don't really understand. They don't see what I do. But if they saw what I did and how good I am at stuff and how many things I fix around here, then I'd be on it. We start to get that. And it actually causes a huge amount of fractures and problems amongst us as God's people. Because you notice the question they asked, they didn't just say to Jesus, um, who will be great in your kingdom? What did they say? It wasn't quite who will be great, it was who will be the greatest. What is in who will be the greatest that's not in who will be great? The assumption that it's a competition with others and if I can push them down, it lifts me up. That if I want to think of myself as the greatest, not only do I have to think well of myself, but I also have to think poorly of others. If Peter wanted to make the case about how he's the most eloquent and the most courageous, he has to point at one of the other guys and say, unlike you, because you stutter and you're a coward. He has to start to push others down to make his case to be the greatest. And it, and it fractures us from one another when we live lives in community, continually judging ourselves against others and wanting to be better than them. Pride and selfish ambition that we have. Well, to any of you who've even had a whisper of that in your heart at some point in your life, which, I, if you like me, I, I'm hoping that's a lot of us, Jesus has something pretty important to say tonight. It is a pretty important um, message for us. And before we even get to the bit about little kids, we'll, we'll get there in a second. I want to look at everything except the little kids bit in, in verse 2 and 3. So let me read it for you. It says, he, he called a little child, had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the question the disciples have? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What does Jesus say to people who ask that question? Unless you change, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change, you will not enter it. That is, the the path that you are currently on leaves you outside the kingdom. Not even not great, outside. Which matters, right? Because if we look at this passage, we don't go to the beginning and find, oh, this is Jesus there with some Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. Who was he there with? Verse 1, at that time, the disciples. This is like Peter and James and John. This is the crew are there and they're thinking, which of us is the greatest? And Jesus says, the path you're currently walking there of pride and selfish ambition, judging one another and elevating yourself, if you keep walking that path, not only are you not the greatest, you're not even in. And so we might be super familiar with this story or this this framework of be like little kids. Um, I want us to really hear it tonight with some gravity behind it because it's not just what's at risk oh I might not be the greatest what's at risk is I might not even be one of Jesus's and he says that to the the disciples themselves don't take this lightly well he says unless you change from the path they're on what's the path they're on is selfish ambition and pride what's the cure that he says become like children that's what I said wasn't it in Verse 3, there, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, don't all start building the stage and playing with pencils, but unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It, it does get us thinking, doesn't it, right? What does it actually mean, change and become like little children? 
I was stuck on this one for a little while um, thinking about tonight because the first place my mind actually went when I, when I read through that after um, Sean and Aline had sent the passages through was actually to 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 where Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, reasoned like a child, spoke like a child. When I grew up, I put childish ways behind me. I'm like, wait, Jesus is saying be like a child. Paul's saying don't be like a child. Which one is it, right? Like Bible, make up your mind. Are we meant to be childish? Are we not meant to be childish? Are we meant to be childlike? Is there a difference between childlike and childish? What, what on earth is going on? Um, and so over that time, I started keeping an eye over the last few weeks on little Thea and chatting to people about um, what it means to be like little children and thought she'll give me some great stories that I can use. And I was thinking there'll be um, stories which, granted, there were that we could pull out about uh, times when, because I don't get to see much, she's just super affectionate. Right. Uh, mum's around all the time but dad's only around sometimes go away kiddo you, you're kind of making the point really well but at the same time not right but we could get an awesome one out of this couldn't we about the way she just wants to be near her dad and so we spiritually should just want to be with our dad right we could take all kinds of things from from little Thea about that how excited she is uh, when I get home we need to be like that for God uh, her her obedience um, when she gets told what to do don't pull the speaker cable any further out of the wall and she didn't right how obedient is she when she gets told what to do by dad we should be like that with our heavenly father or she's she's scared of things or nervous about things and I say it's okay and suddenly she gets a bit braver and we're meant to be like God and trust him like that and believe on him like that I thought that's cool I'll get a whole bunch of stories but you know what the more common stories were that were easier to notice over the last couple of weeks were the ones where uh, she doesn't get away and starts crying and having a bit of a tantrum right or or where she's uh, so zoned in on some particular little thing that she doesn't really have a sense of perspective and scale uh, doesn't understand the bigger picture and and so uh, gets confused or upset all the times over the last six months uh, where she's learned to, to test boundaries so that then when me and Em aren't looking, she can try and break those boundaries. Uh, and, and suddenly with all of those stories, I'm thinking, I, I don't think this is what Jesus was getting at. Right? To, to just take childhood and, and start picking bits of it and saying this is what Jesus means is actually really dangerous. Right? I, I was worried in the last few weeks that what I might end up doing is start kind of with a blank piece of paper, write down all the things that I think Christians should be like, find that in children and say, see, this is what Jesus meant. I don't want to do that tonight, but let, let me give you an example of, of kind of what really brought this home to me over the, um, kind of the last week. And I saw a little bit of my own preparation in this and it scared me. And I just want to warn you guys so you can read the Bible better. Uh, here's a sermon that I found on this passage while I was researching. It's a short one, um, but let me read you a couple of excerpts from it. After reading the passage, it says, there's a lot of wisdom in these words about become like little children. It's possible that we're to take matters of take on matters of faith sometimes that, that we just don't understand. Children don't understand very much about the world yet, uh, and yet they accept that they don't know everything. Their lack of understanding doesn't bother them at all. Children accept certain kinds of people that society rejects sometimes. The homeless, mentally ill, alcoholics, drug addicts. Children see the inner beauty of a person instead of noticing flaws and shortcomings. We could learn a great deal from children about the dignity and value of every human person. It's going well so far, isn't it? It's the sort of things I would have written on that blank piece of paper. Jesus says we must turn and become like them in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe it would do us some good to learn to be more spontaneous, curious, in touch with our emotions, be more willing to reach out to others, accept people as they are, be more joyful, live in the present moment, play and enjoy life more. Jesus talks about going in search of lost sheep. He could mean us. Maybe it's not just sin that Jesus is talking about. Maybe it's because as adults we've learned to be more cynical, jaded, reserved, less trusting, more skeptical. These traits lead us further away from God. 
Maybe today we could try to remember our childhood. How did the world in general feel? What did you enjoy doing the most? And as an adult, have you stopped doing it? Maybe like ride bikes, swim, fly a kite, eat ice cream, or have a pet, for example. This would be a good challenge today, to remember our childhood and the simple pleasures and ways of relating to other people in the world around us that we once knew. Maybe we could do something we haven't done in a long time that we used to enjoy when we were little. Maybe do something spontaneous, like picking wildflowers, or go to the park on our lunch break. There are a million little ways we can reclaim some of the childlike qualities we once had if we just look at the world around us with fresh eyes. That's the end of the sermon. I'm, I'm, I'm finished for today, so I can actually... Like, it's, it's rubbish, isn't it? A sermon which starts off with Jesus' words and a blank sheet of paper saying, whatever I can attribute to a child, I'm going to put in Jesus' mouth, as though he said it, starts with some admirable virtues, and by the end says, maybe, 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 until suddenly the word of God, which is meant to be a double-edged sword, which is uh, sharp and alive and cuts us to the soul, suddenly the hard-hitting application of the, the word of the God of the universe is pick some flowers and ride a bike. And it's actually really dangerous to just take God's word, read it loosely, and then import whatever we think we should be into it. So I don't want to do that tonight. I actually want to stick really tight to what Jesus actually means when he says become like a child. And he doesn't mean any of those things I mentioned before. If he had, if it was about bikes, right, the the guy writing this, Matthew, could have clarified that because he would have said something like, They asked who should be the greatest and Jesus grabbed a kid who was riding past on a bike and put him in the middle and said, unless you ride a bike like this kid, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. If it was about obedience, he would have grabbed a a kid who'd just done what they were told, right? Or maybe he would have just said, come here. And when they did exactly what they were told, like they obviously would have, he would have said, see, unless you're obedient like this kid. He didn't do any of those. What's it say in verse 4? What's his explanation for how we should be like kids? Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, perhaps yours says, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Aha, uh-huh, that solves it, right? Because when I'm listing adjectives to describe Thea, obviously near the top of the list is humble, right? <laughs> Mum knows Thea. She's too, right? Kids are not particularly humble, are they? It seems odd that of all of the things that Jesus should say, this is the virtue that you should emulate from children, humility, right? I'm not sure that there's anyone more egocentric than a young child, right? Because they they just haven't learnt any better yet. They don't understand um, other people. And so it's odd to think we need to be humble like children. The reality is actually... uh, that Jesus isn't saying, have humility like this child. What he's actually saying is, if you see yourself like this child, that will be a humbling experience. Because he has to go and grab a kid from off to the side that no one's thinking of, that no one's considering, that no one cares particularly about. And he grabs one of them and says, you want to know about greatness? Take this kid's position. Be a nobody experience what it's like to be forgotten by everyone and, and relatively inconsequential. The, the picture of, of Thea, while, while we're sticking with everything being about Thea, um, the picture of Thea I think that we should have in our mind here is not actually her with some magical halo on being the most humble person ever, but actually me and Em chatting in the kitchen while Thea plays in the lounge room, just talking to us, but we're not paying enough attention to even realise that because she's just prattling non-stop all day. And then after a while, it turns into, Dad, look at me, Dad, look at me, Mum, look at me, look at me. 
but we're still talking because there's grown-up things going on and we've got more important things to be doing than seeing whatever she happens to be doing with a doll at the moment. And so we keep talking until eventually she comes over to the kitchen. She's going, excuse me, excuse me, mum, excuse me, dad, excuse me, excuse me. And then eventually, once all the important grown-up stuff's done, we'll turn to her and say, thanks, kiddo, for saying excuse me and waiting, and, and, and then we'll give her the time of day, right? That it's, it's the kind of ignored, forgotten, unimportant child that Jesus has on view here. That, that's what he picks up and, and puts in the middle of the people. Kids are a background in the ancient world. These days we're a lot more kid-centered, aren't we? We have the, the luxury and the affluence to be able to uh, pour huge amounts of resources and, and affection into our kids. But especially in the ancient world, uh, kids are a background noise that are, are one-day adults. Kind of that's, that's the point of a kid. But they don't contribute anything. They don't bring anything to the table. And when I get Father's Day presents, like I pay for it, M chooses it. Thea really doesn't have much to do with that, right? She doesn't bring anything in a worldly sense to the family. And that's the sort of person that Jesus has on view here. That's who he means when he picks this kid up and puts him in the middle. He just wants the smallest nobody that he can find and sticks him in the middle of the circle. And then he says four things. And I just want us to, to kind of think on these four things about a little nobody and how we're meant to respond to them. Right? If we want to be not just great in the kingdom, if we want to be in the kingdom, how do we respond to the littlest nobodies who exist? Four things. The first thing he says is become one of them. Become one of them. I don't think he means... Uh, Give up your adult vocab. Stop being able to construct sentences. Right? Stop being able to lift more than three kilos at a time. He doesn't mean actually become an infant. What was that? I think the new NIV puts it well like this. It says, take the lowly position of one of them. If you want to decide where you belong on a list of greatness, put yourself where that little nobody kid is. And he doesn't say that just out of some kind of sense of false humility. Oh, I've got to pretend I'm a nobody. Right? He actually does it because in a profoundly life-changing way, that's who all of us actually are. Like Jesus who's talking to them, they come up to him to talk about greatness. He's the God who spoke and made the universe. And they want to know how great they are and which one of them is greater. The things that we puff ourselves up about, right? Like, the smartest person in this room, what is that intellect next to God? Right? He invented literally every single thing that exists, right? He invented quantum physics. If we're right on it so far, we might even be wrong and he invented something else that's more complex that we just haven't figured out yet, right? He's, he's infinitely smarter than any of us. It doesn't matter how rich we are, how well paid we are, how good our investment portfolios are, right? You could own an entire block on Manhattan he owns the planet, right? he owns the galaxy. He, he laughs at those of us who think we're better because we're slightly different to the people around us. Um, some of you guys, this wasn't great at 8am, but someone in this room must have heard the phrase 12 before, right? Who, anyone who works in a school has heard the phrase 12 Uh 12 refers to a 12-year-old. And in particular, uh, a 12-year-old who's maybe a bit too big for their boots, thinks they're Things are kind of all that. They're, uh, they're a grown-up now. They really matter now that they're 12. Right? A little bit of a derogatory term. Um, 
Do you know who the principal group who use the term 12 have always been? Who is it who insults 12-year-olds who think they're all that? It tends to be 13 and 14-year-olds, right? Every youth group I've been at, the main people who uh, complain about the annoying year sixes are the annoying year sevens. Right? No offense if there's any year sevens here. But the reality is when those year sevens come up to me and say, oh, this is so annoying, those little year six kids. All I want to say is you're pretty much the same as them, right? You're all the same to me. You're all annoying. Get over yourselves. Right? Now, I, I, I don't. So again, sorry that you guys happen to be here tonight. Um, but that's, that's how I feel in that situation. How much bigger are all the gaps involved when we stand before Jesus and try and point to the other people in church and say, which one of us is greater? It's laughable to him to think that there is any meaningful difference in greatness between any of us. The reality is, next to him, we're all that nobody little kid picked up and put in the center of the story just because Jesus wanted to. Not because we're amazing, just because he put us there. And so the first thing when we think about these little ones, notice Jesus changes his phrase as he goes through. He stops talking about little children. He was using the word for child earlier, uh, and, and he actually just starts saying little ones, or littles, right? He, he just uses a noun that's of the adjective little, right? It's just little ones. He, he wants to broaden it and say, the defini- definition here isn't about being under 12 years old. It's, it's just about being a nobody. It's about being the forgotten person, the, the kind of marginalized person, the person who the world thinks doesn't matter. The incompetent person, uh, not very skilled. The ones I actually, I, I think, struggle with more are the ones not who lack skills in maths or handyman, craft, whatever. Um, it's the ones who lack social skills. We just call them annoying, right? But, but it's the people who no one cares about, no one gets on with, no one thinks they're valuable. The little nobodies who are normally left to the side. Jesus says, if you, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, become one of them in in your own view of yourself, in your own mind, realize that you are one of them. What's the next thing he says? Become one of them. Next he says, welcome them. Have a look at verse 5. He says, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. And by extension, whoever ignores and rejects a little child like that rejects and ignores him. It's what he goes on to say, Matthew 25, sheep and the goats, right? For those who who know that story where Jesus is separating everyone, judging, end time judgments on view. And Jesus says to a whole bunch of them, you didn't look after me, you didn't feed me when I was hungry, you didn't give me drink, you didn't give me clothes, you didn't uh, visit me when I I was sick or in prison. They say, when? And he says, when the the least of the brothers were in that situation and you ignored them, you're ignoring me. We need to become the little ones, we need to welcome the little ones, the forgotten the ones the world doesn't really have time for. So it's worth thinking, Corridong, North or Anglican churches, how good are you at welcoming the little ones? Welcoming the ones who the world doesn't take that much notice of, the ones who aren't that important, aren't really worth the time. I can't answer that, but you guys can chat about it later and work on doing it better. Don't just answer how good are we corporately, though, at welcoming the little ones. Do some of the harder work and say, how good am I personally at welcoming the little ones? Just into your life, into uh, your social spheres, 
And how, how well do you welcome someone who is an outsider, who is a bit of a nobody? I mean, I, I've been uh, convicted at heaps working on this um, for, for this week to actually look at the people you spend time with and your friends and say, do all of my friendships make sense to a non-Christian? Because if so, I'm, not, I'm probably not doing this very much. There should be friends in your life who the non-Christian world looks at you and says, why are you their friend? It should actually confuse people who you're welcoming into your life, who you welcome in in hospitality, who you engage in friendship with. It should be that outsiders look at you and go, why are you wasting your time with them? And the answer is because Jesus wasted his time on me. We need to become the little ones. We need to welcome the little ones. Next, from verse 6, and it, it kind of goes on, but here's verse 6. It says, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. We've got to become the little ones. We've got to welcome the little ones. We've got to protect the little ones. Right. We've got to protect the little ones. And Jesus says here and, and goes on uh, to, to say, we've got to protect the little ones from sin. Right. Remember, the little ones are... All of us in our weak, broken human fragility. And Jesus says, protect his people from sin. I still remember the, uh, the first time I really arced up as a dad. It was, um, I don't remember how long ago now, six or 12 months, uh, down at Quakers Hill. There was a new playground there and Thea was playing on it. And she was, she was just learning to walk and she was standing on, on a kind of meter by meter platform on this play equipment. Um, and a little boy who was standing on the other side of that platform just took two steps straight across and pushed her in the chest. Right? Now, fortunately, she hadn't been walking long enough to try and keep her balance. I think if she'd stumbled, she would have gone headfirst backwards off the equipment. She was timid enough and bad enough balance. She just dropped straight down onto a nappy and everything was fine. But I don't think I've ever come as close in my life to backhanding a two-year-old boy across a playground than I did at that moment. Right? I, I was actually surprised at how quickly I got incredibly angry at a kid who really didn't deserve it. Right? He's like a 20-month-old boy. But when someone just clearly set out to hurt my daughter, my little one, I got mad quick. And, and sin hurts. When we, when we sin, it creates brokenness and, and fractures and suffering. It brings death and decay into this world. And Jesus responds the same way I arced up there. Right? He, he gets mad at the people who welcome or encourage, or even just um, empower sin amongst his people, enable sin amongst his people. And so whatever maturity or social influence, whatever bigness you happen to have, Jesus says, to your darndest to protect the little ones from sin. Guard his people from sin. Don't let there be a, a culture of sinfulness enabled by those who have all of the influence and greatness amongst his people. Become a little one. Welcome the little ones. Protect the little ones from sin, including yourself, right? He says it's better to be, what was it? Maimed, blind, or drowned than to have to front up to Jesus one day responsible for being the, the one who brought sin amongst his people. Protect his little ones. The last thing he says, become one, welcome them, protect them, and pursue them. You notice this is where uh, the, the story of the lost sheep finds its way into Matthew's gospel in this context. 
And actually, this one kind of blindsided me a little bit as I was getting towards the end of my prep, and it, it kind of hit me pretty hard. Because I wasn't particularly proud to realize that there are people in my life who I am more distressed at the idea of them leaving my ministry or my church or even the faith than I am about other people. There's, there's people who I um, long more to see them saved than other people. First on that would probably be family and friends, right? And as I think about that, neither of those are things that earn those people anything. They either happen to be born into my family or they happen to be born socially competent enough to have landed in social circles. So I now enjoy their company. And suddenly that means I want to pursue them more when it comes to matters of the faith. I want to care about them more. Next would probably be the most useful people. The, the leaders who are kind of high-level leaders around me and um, when, when they're firing on all cylinders like it's good for my ministry, it's good for the church, there's other people who are, are flourishing as a result of their ministry and man, if they've got some doubts and those doubts mean they might want to stop being a youth group leader or maybe even stop coming to church or following Jesus, that's going to cause me a lot of hassles because they're going to be hard to replace and I really want to pursue them. There's those like down at Quakers Hill, we've got a couple of church plants going and it's hard to do a church plant without having a corner of your eye on the bottom line of the budget. And so there's families who when they're having issues with their faith, with their marriage, with their family, with all kinds of things like that, they jump very quickly to the top of our to-do list because we know if they leave it'll probably cost us a staff member. So we pursue them. There's those who I just know are on my side in different battles and politics that happen to be going on in church. Even just as a youth minister, I found this hard. Because you know what one of the foundations of wanting to go into youth ministry and why we all get fired up about youth ministry is? Pick your stat. You do whatever you want with stats, don't you? But it was 70% of people who are going to continue on as Christians into adulthood find their faith in their teenage years. And if you convert a teenager, they become a young adult and they're this uh, energetic powerhouse of church ministries and then they become young professionals uh, who, who roll a lot of funds into churches and then they have kids and that fills up your playtimes and your kids' ministries. Uh, and then as they grow in maturity, they provide this stabilizing influence to the whole church and strategically it just makes a lot more sense to convert them when they're a teenager. Notice what the passage doesn't say. It doesn't say, in the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any strategic convert be lost. That any financial partner be lost. That any of Josh's good friends be lost. Who's Jesus' heart for here? Who's the Father's heart for here? In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of the little ones be lost. The forgotten ones. The annoying youth group leader who actually takes me more effort to have them on the team than they ever give back in productivity. The, the people who the worldly selfish part of me doesn't really want to pursue. There's never going to be a return on investment for my time there. It's those little ones. And if that's who Jesus' heart is for, that, that's who our heart should be for as well. And that should actually play out in where we spend our time and how we do our ministries. I know lots of churches, and this is a wonderful thing, pour huge amounts of effort into kids' ministry. And it's a great outworking of this, right? Because kids' ministry doesn't give anything back, at least in the short term. And even in the long term, we just see what God does with it, right? But we pour out our heart and pour out our time into SRE and kids' church and things like that. I actually think the other end of the, the lifespan 
There's probably more of a challenge on this one for me. Down at our church, we're figuring out stuff with chaplaincy into um, nursing homes. And to think, like, I know full well that if I spend day after day, hour after hour over a protracted period of time converting a 90-year-old, that's not going to have much impact on my church. That's not a good growth model. But man, it's going to make a difference to that person for eternity, isn't it? That, that little one who could so easily be forgotten by the world. But Jesus says, pursue them. Right? He came to pursue them. Who else is it? Poor people, people who aren't really in our socioeconomic class, people who go to a worse school than us. Who is it? Who are the forgotten ones? Disabled people, people with handicaps of different types, people who've just made some bad decisions, parenting or in their marriages and there's brokenness all around them and we really would rather not associate with them that much. Who is it? Who are the little ones? Because Jesus says not only are we meant to become them, realize we are them, we're meant to welcome them protect them and then get out there and pursue them because that's who his heart's for and actually when when he came that's what he was doing and you and I were the little ones who he was wasting his time on so tonight like it's not about how to be the greatest in the kingdom the people who had that question on their heart Jesus (laughs) smacks down by saying if you're asking who's the greatest in the kingdom you might not even be in it check your heart it's not about greatness it's about who does Jesus care most about he says it's about the little ones, the forgotten, the ignored, the ones the world says aren't worth the time. What will it look like for you guys to become those little ones in the way you view yourself? How will that change the way you interact? What will it look like to welcome those nobodies corporately as a church and as the 6pm congregation and privately, personally, in your own life, in your own hospitality, to welcome them, to protect God's people from sin as ferociously as Jesus warns us to and to get out there and and pursue them. I don't really know, I've been out of the area for a little bit too long now to know who the little ones are in Currajong and Northo and Bomo and Currajong Heights and Grosse Vale and wherever else everyone here is from. But who are the little ones in your life, in your extended family? Who are the forgotten ones that no one really wants to spend time with? In your workplace, in your street, in your community, in the town you live in, who are the forgotten ones? And what will it look like for you to go out this week and treat those people the way Jesus treated you? And I pray that he might do the miracle in our hearts that's necessary for that to happen. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we come before you tonight as little ones who all too often think we're great. And we're sorry for that. Jesus, please give us a right view of ourselves. Help us to become like little children in our own eyes. Let the humility that comes from that enable us to welcome the other little ones. Not with pride or ideas of our own grandeur, but just with humble gratitude that you've been so kind to us. Jesus, help us to not ignore sin and assume it doesn't matter. Help us to want to protect and defend your people as passionately as you do and then lord please help us to pursue those little lost broken nobodies who you came to save thank you that when we were those little lost broken nobodies you came to save us
Jesus, please change us from the inside out in a way that gives us more joyful lives, that welcomes more people into the joy of knowing you, and that gives you the honour and glory you deserve. We pray it in your precious name. Amen.